You know, funnily enough, I don't actually have that much to say about the behind the scenes for once. Usually I talk for like, what, 10 minutes at the beginning of these, like, here's all the behind the scenes. But this one apparently actually came forward and came together pretty straightforwardly. And that makes sense from a production standpoint. See, there was this film they were working on. Uh, I wrote down the name, Song of the Sea. And uh, most of the main development staff was like, all right, we're, we're going to make this together and it's going to work. And it's just, okay, okay, let's try. Maybe if we, uh, okay, maybe if we put it upside down, is that going to work? No, it just wasn't working no matter what they did. And it, it was based on this tale of Orpheus. And they just couldn't get it working, and I believe pieces of it ended up being taken over to Hercules, but that's off topic. The point being, they just couldn't get it to work. And finally, Katzenberg, <laughs> eventually I will stop referencing him. By, this, by, the time, by the time in which this movie came out, he had long since left for DreamWorks. But by the time this film started production, he was still working there. And he was like, alright, guys, 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 stop working on that Orpheus tale. We're going to work on Hunchback instead. Now, the original Hunterback of Notre Dame, of course, was a very architectural tale and very, very, very dark. Way too dark for this. I've actually heard some people say, and in fact, in Discord, right before I sat down to record this, I heard someone ask, why, why make this into a Disney film? Well, the truth is, it was actually all about Quasimodo. They were mainly focusing on him and his re relevance or presence, I guess, when it comes to fairy tale, fairy tale culture. You know, there are plenty of fairy tale uh, allegories and analogies to Quasimodo. And he's shown up here and there as a direct consequence thereof. So they're like, okay, we'll do a Quasimodo tale. That sells itself, right? You know, he's ugly, but he's a nice person. Boom. There you go. But then they're like, well, hang on, that doesn't work. We can't do that. No, no, we'll just, we're just going to do it. Okay, fine. Um, where are we going to set this at? Well, here's an idea. Rather than having this set in a large-scale area with lots of different areas, why don't we really zoom in the camera of this one? What do you mean? Well, let's set it around Notre Dame. Okay, that's logical. And if you pay attention to this film, they don't leave the immediate premises of Notre Dame hardly at all. In fact, they only do so, I believe, twice. Once when they go out to the outskirts to burn innocent villagers to the death, and once when they go to the Court of Fools, and that's it. Everything else is set right in the immediate vicinity of Notre Dame, which makes sense. Again, you know, it's the hunchback of Notre Dame. <clears throat> but it also makes sense because, remember, they had already been working on another film for some time when they had to shift over to this one. So this one had a, a bit of a shrinked production schedule. Now that's okay, because for once it seemed to be properly managed. Not by Katzenberg, by the time this film actually really got going, he was gone. But, you know, by the team that was left, they are like, yeah, okay. I will point out, the team that worked on this is the same team that worked on Beauty and the Beast. And they already kind of had a general feel for how they wanted to do things, knew each other, and worked well together. Which is part of why, once again, I return to my point about having good management is exactly what you need for these kind of projects. Even though they had a truncated everything, and they had to just completely chop up the actual story, the, you know, the, the Victor Hugo novel, they still managed to make a fairly decent film because they had good management. Go figure. Oh, yeah. Notice that we are, here we are, we are actually in France. The good news is we're not going to see the, the Virginia company this time around. Anyway, so they start off with the villain right up front. Uh, it's the first thing we see. Oh, my God, I am evil and terribly awful. Yes, I'm going to destroy you all. I will go ahead and admit, I didn't even catch at first that he was divorced from the church. He's the minister, the judge, rather than being the archdeacon. In short, he's not actually a member of the Catholic Church. 
which means, if you're paying attention, the Catholic Church is portrayed in a universally positive light in this film. How rare is that? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to sh throw any shade, but fiction has used the Catholic Church as its punching bag for decades at this point. So it's just... It, it, wait, what? Because for the longest time I assumed what they were doing was showing both sides of the church, Frollo and the Archdeacon, the actual Archdeacon in the film. But nope. <laughs> Anywho... <clears throat> I just got to mention something really quick about Frollo. First of all, Tony J is amazing. He is super awesome, and I am a huge fan of his, and I'm very sad now. <laughs> all right, how many of you know what I'm about to say? Yes, one of the actors they reached out to for voicing Frollo was Patrick Stewart. That's five out of six now. This is getting weird. Anyways... <laughs> It's just, I don't know why that's so funny to me at this point. Like, at first I was like, oh, okay, that's cute. And then it showed up again, and again, and again. And I'm like, what are they doing? Anyways. <clears throat> so we see Frollo. Now, the first thing we see immediately is the difference between Frollo and, well, basically everyone else. As usual, the villain of the given work is, is generally portrayed in a negative light compared to everyone else. Even his own minions are not portrayed as evil as he or she is. In this case, though, he's willing to run down an innocent woman just because he thinks she's stealing and is willing to kill her because she's a gypsy. I mean, she deserves to die. She's something that I don't like, and that means all of them must die forever. I'm being slightly facetious, but he is a raging racist. Which also brings me to the next point. See, the film establishes Frollo very effectively right off the bat. He goes... He goes to drown a baby. Just toss it in the well. All joking aside, what kind of human being does it take that that's your first thought, is, I need to drown this baby? That is amazingly messed up, and that's part of a point I'm going to be constructing as we go through this rumination. The next thing we find out is an interesting thing. See, he appears to be religious. He is a follower of the Catholic faith, despite being a horrifically evil person. Insert your own joke here. They're all good. But the point is, you'll notice that he in no way actually believes the faith. You caught that, right? In short, he is only... God, I'm... it's going to be really hard not to talk about religion in this film. So, if I step on toes, that's why. And I mean, what do you want from me? It's not back in Notre Dame. This is also not only the first, but also basically the only uh, film to really tackle a real-life religion to this extent. Anyways, <clears throat> he... Let me put it to you this way. Some people do good because it's the right thing to do. Some people do good because they want to. Some people do good because they are afraid of the consequences. And that last one, well, that's Frollo, except he doesn't do good. It would be actually more accurate to say he doesn't do bad. In fact, if I was to phrase this whole thing again, I would say some people don't do bad because it's wrong. Some people don't do bad because they don't want to, and then some people don't do bad because they're afraid of the consequences of doing bad. Now, we can understand in human society why this is a thing, but when it comes to a fictional universe especially, this helps to distinguish Frollo from everyone else, because the only reason... The only reason that he doesn't, that he's like, doesn't decide to drown a baby after murdering a woman 
is because he is afraid of the consequences in the hereafter. Yeah. So this, of course, leads to Quasimodo. Next thing we see. And hey, look, a Disney protagonist who secretly longs for freedom. Although calling Frodo Frollo a father figure is just... But Quasimodo's kindness is established right off the bat, as well as his desire for freedom. Uh, and then we see the gargoyles. Now, I'm going to go and admit something that's probably going to make me you know, not very popular here. I don't actually like the gargoyles all that much in this film. In fact, I literally only have one note in all these notes, which is about a page and a half, of anything to say about the gargoyles. And uh, I'll get more into that later, because it actually comes up during the final battle. So for now, all I have to say is, Jason Alexander's cool. Moving on. <clears throat> so Frollo comes in, and I wrote down a couple of his lines. You exist at my behest. You owe me everything. I am your only friend. You know, I actually wonder how much he believes his own bullcrap. No, I'm serious. As later parts of the film show, he obviously doesn't really believe in anything. There's no actual faith there. Instead, it's just a very messed up, deranged individual. So I'm kind of curious if he knows how much he is lying through his teeth to him, or if he legitimately thinks that everything else out there is wicked and awful and horrible and must be purged. Because it wouldn't surprise me all that much if he only was this way, specifically not only as a way to vent his particular racism, but also because of the fact that he doesn't, you know... It's a good way to hold on to power. You know, aim, aim the crowd at a direction, right? It's a pretty common technique. This also leads to the 16-minute, 36-second mark. This is when Phoebus and Esmeralda, the actual love interests in this film show up. Now, I want to talk about that, but not right now. What I want to talk about more is that Frollo used his influence and power to pull the captain, who was very well venerated and one of the best captains in, in the military of France, apparently, at this point in history. This is Paris, obviously. And he wanted to pull him from the front lines of the wars to go fight here. Now, that, that line caught me for a second. Now, I'm probably going to oust myself as a moron, but I could only find two wars that were happening at this point in history, which is 1831. There's the Greek War of Independence, which France was involved with, and then there was the Conquest of Algeria, which was being done by France. And that's it. Are those the wars being referred to? I mean, there's actually plenty of wars that occur both before and after this point in time, and ones that involve France even, but... Huh? Anyways, moving on. I know, I know. Historical accuracy. Blah, 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 blah. Let's go ahead and talk instead about Quasimodo, who it's quickly established has not only superhuman strength, but superhuman agility. Now, I, f I emphasize that point because this man will literally break iron bars later with his bare hands. This is not at the level of he's kind of buff. He is literally superhuman. Now, I'm okay with that. In fact, I have no problems with that whatsoever. I'm only emphasizing it to show that he does have a natural advantage over his opponents. And this is something that, well, actually is kind of a recurring trend in these films in its own right. Um, if we look at someone like Simba, for, well, actually, Simba's a bad example. Sorry, sorry, I actually meant Nala. So let's ignore Nala for a second. Aladdin is probably a good example. He was designed to be very buff, athletic, and very agile, specifically so he could, you know, maneuver his way in circles around any opponent. 
uh, John Smith and Pocahontas both were also designed to be basically superior specimens and able to do things no one else was able to do. We'll see this in the future with Mulan herself, although most of that's because of self-determination. Um, Hercules is an obvious example. You, you get the general gist of this. It's not a universal trope, but you can see how relatively common it is for the protagonist to literally have some kind of superhuman capacity of one form or another. This is probably just the most overt I've seen thus far, which is funny because the next film is Hercules. Anyways, um, so they establish his strength, they establish his agility, and then he goes down into the crowd of fools. Now, multiple scenes in this film show, showcase a large crowd. Now, I want to give special praise to this from a purely technical and mechanical perspective. I know I, didn't, I said I wasn't going to say a lot about the making of, but you remember that CGI program that they spent three years making for Lion King? Well, as I hinted at back in the Lion King rumination, that was not just being done for the sake of that one film, but so they could have it going forward. The reason they're able to showcase that large of a mob in multiple scenes in this film, during the, the Carnival of Fools, during the mob attack, during the, uh, the, the final climactic battle with you know the torches and all that, the reason they were able to do that is because of that engine. They used the same engine, the same technique, and the same process and computing power in order to go ahead and make this whole thing. And I keep dancing around the word because I don't actually know if it's a software or what. I'm guessing it's a software based on the way they talk about it. They're actually pretty vague. But anyways, you get the idea. The point is they used this to generate the crowd, and it actually looks pretty good. They also, if you're noticing, they do a lot more big, epic panning shots with pure CGI. The thing they started doing all the way back in Beauty and the Beast, and they've been doing every film since. In each film, it's been getting a little bit more better. Yes, more better, not less better. It's a difference. Now, <clears throat> so he goes to the Fool's thing, and what's the first thing that happens? He's mocked, and then praised, and then mocked again. Now, I point that out. You remember how I made the point that Pocahontas is one of its big themes wasn't really fully realized? That struck me because in this film, that theme of the benefits and detriments of freedom was better exemplified in this film than it was back in Pocahontas, even though it was a major point of Pocahontas. Here it's arguably the major theme, the, the theme of the difference between the, the very nice prison versus the freedom to who, do and be who and what you are. And this scene with the fools, this, this shows it so clearly. The same people who are willing to laugh and dance with him are the same people who are willing to attack him. In fact, in both cases, it's mob mentality. In, <laughs> which is a very dangerous thing, but mob mentality is basically going with the crowd, to put it as simply as possible. You'll notice as soon as people started being kind to him, pr prompted by Esmeralda in particular, they were like, yeah, okay. And the people were kind to him. Then the guards, who are cruel, and of course the, the bad guys along with Frollo, they started throwing at vegetables and stuff. So the crowd started being cruel. Yeah. Anywho. This, of course, then leads to uh, a rather strong contrast between the citizens and the soldiers and this whole thing happens. There's this nice d diatribe that happens back and forth where Esmeralda and Phoebus are talking. And uh, God, I hate his name, by the way. Kevin, can I just say Kevin Klein? Kevin Klein has a scene with, with Demi Moore. <laughs> and um, she says, oh, you're not like the other th soldiers. And his first, first response is, oh, thank you. I find myself wondering how corrupt the local guards have become underneath Frollo. Because you got to imagine he's the kind of guy who would only promote people who either believe in his zealotry or follow his commands without 
question. I mean, you'll notice that one of the earlier scenes, they established the fact that he just has people whipped in the background. And the mere fact that they established that, they don't show it. They don't even make it heard, other than the crack of the whip. But whipping someone... I mean, think about how actually horrifying and deadly and terrifying that that really is. As I've talked about many times, including in my Witcher 3 videos, that's not a small thing. For that, The mere fact that that's in a Disney film at all is actually kind of impressive. This has been argued to be one of the darkest Disney films uh, ever. In fact, this was one of the only Disney films at this era to actually get a PG rating, which I know doesn't sound like much nowadays, but that was pretty significant at the time. The only other one was uh, Cauldron, I believe, Black Cauldron. Anywho, so then she has a nice song, God Help the Outcasts. I mentioned, of course, you know, the religious aspect of things, but <laughs> I, it's hard to avoid this one. As I said, the church itself is portrayed as positive, not the people, because what we hear is that they pray for, uh, let me see, it was glory, wealth, and I think prestige? No, that's not right. I forget the third thing. But they, play for, they pray for glory and wealth. Please give me money, God. Whereas Esmeralda prays, please take care of the people who have it worse than me. <laughs> Just point it out. Because the next thing that happens is uh, he's down trying, you know, trying to see what's going on. Quasimodo, as that is. And the other people see him and are like, Hey, get out of here, freak. You're so weird because you're slightly different than me. Freaking mutants. Oh, we need some kind of bill to register them, then we know where they are. And I'm sorry, getting off topic. I, I'm sorry, I can't help but think of this as like an X-Men thing. How can I not? Look at him. He literally acts like a low-tier X-Men. Anyways, anyways. This leads to her reaching out to him and the two connecting, which makes sense. She is nice to him and is actually kind to him, and this then leads him to crushing on her. For once, I'm not going to complain about the romantic aspect there. Because, well, that's not the point. For once in a Disney film, there's a, oh my gosh, she's so pretty. And, oh my gosh, we're so close. And it really is just a crush. It's exactly what it's portrayed as. The initial levels of romance. The very first bare-bones beginnings of that. I sadly cannot say the same about Phoebus. But anyways, moving on. This leads to... I'm going to go ahead and admit this, my favorite song in this film, Hellfire. If you haven't listened to it lately, or if you don't watch these with me, can I, can I suggest you take a moment and pause and go watch it? It's a good song, but I do mean watch it, to see it, because let's just say that they had to do several censorship passes over it. I'm not even kidding. So, um, gosh, where to start? The Hellfire song is... A really, really messed up insight into how bad Frollo is. Remember, the first scene we saw had him murder a woman for no real reason and then try to murder an innocent baby. So we already know Frollo's a bad guy, but this this takes it another layer of insidious. He is self-loathing, and he refuses to accept that the, that the flaw, that the sin is his. It has to be hers. I mean, obviously she's so damned sexy. Yes, sexy. He is actually, this is, I think, the only villain so possessed with lust, of all things. Not pride, or arrogance, or avarice, which is a common one. No, 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 this is pure lust. He wants to bone her. And the film doesn't shy away from that, which is astonishing. Again, Disney film. 
Yes, I know Lion King was originally going to have something like this, and they walked away from it. And yes, I know the recent Lion King thing added it back in. The point being, I'm, I'm just looking at this like, whoa, dude. Because the really messed up part is he lays the blame, all of his blame, that intellectually he knows is on him, on her. He's pious. He is, he is proud of how much of a loyal follower of God that he is. And it's people like that that give churches a bad name. No, really, think about it. <laughs> you could say all you want about churches and their role in human history, but the reason nowadays it is so commonplace to think of a church as corrupt or evil is because of real-life history of people like Judge Frollo. <sighs> if, I, I must destroy her because she's so hot. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, flames. Oh, my God. Ah, uh, he... Hmm. And, of course, the whole thing, you know, the, the, the damnation, just... I, I really do like this song. I, I wish I could talk about it more. It's hard for me to discuss these musical numbers in full detail. You notice I usually don't. I usually only bring up specific points that each musical number has. But this really gives an insight into how messed up Frollo is as an individual. So let's really just... Let's categorize really quick. Rewind. So, he wants her sexually. Not... Romantically, I emphasize, by the way, he does not want to to be with her. He does not want a companion or an equal. He wants an object that he can enjoy. He is then willing to threaten her with death if she refuses to give him this. He says this during the song. This is in addition to the fact that he then, what, what happens immediately after Hellfire is just as telling. He goes around and starts playing hardball and capturing the gypsies. Now, why is that relevant? He hasn't been playing hardball before. Everything he does is nothing new. It's not any, it, it's stuff that he could have done all along if he had the motivation necessary to really push as hard as he could. In short, his general racism, control, whatever his motives were, weren't sufficient for him to go 100%. Wanting her? That is what motivates him to go 100%. Yeah. So he runs around and captures many people who refuse to, you know, sell her out. And, um, just, uh, he also is like, I'm going, uh, he, hmm. He's willing to murder, let's call it what it is, innocent lives just to make a point. Lives, people that are not gypsies, it's worth noting. Just people who apparently have sheltered gypsies. I mean, that just makes sense, right? They're just as bad as the original people. Therefore, they should all burn. And he orders, this is when Phoebus officially switches sides, by the way. He's already been leaning that way the entire film ever since the, the whipping scene I referenced earlier. But yeah, this is when Phoebus officially refuses to switch sides. Now, what's interesting about this, and I may be reading too much into this, but you know me, is that Phoebus's attempt to rebel is completely impotent. Like, all he got done, all he accomplished, was getting himself killed. If Esmeralda hadn't intervened, he would have died right there on the spot. Boom, the end. Goodbye. He does have a good witty one-liner on the way out. Consider it my highest honor. I, I love Kevin Klein, by the way. I just, I love Kevin Klein. Anyways, sorry, moving on. <clears throat> I love his acting. He's just, oh, fish called Wanda. Anyways, so, you know, he's just like, okay. 
And yet when Phoebe, Phoebe, Phoebus, God, I hate that name, and Esmeralda coordinate, when the two of them work together, all of a sudden they start succeeding. And this is going to be a trend for the rest of the film, that when the main three heroes actually work together, they accomplish stuff that they kept failing at prior to, which makes sense. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the gargoyles decide to push Quasimodo to romance and a song called A Guy Like You. I don't like that song. <laughs> I don't. Especially since it's kind of contrary to the whole point. Again, the, 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 the crush thing and the romance thing. Nevertheless, credit where credit is due, an, a worse and lesser work than this one would have had it so he would have done something he would have regretted, but done something foolish and stupid out of jealousy. Instead, when Esmeralda brings Phoebus to him, he does keep him safe. He does shelter him. Without hesitation, I might add. So, yeah, grats, props on that one. Naturally, uh, this is when Phoebus and Esmeralda decide that they are one to love, because this is, if you're paying attention, the second time they've ever met. So, can we just call this the Disney standard romance and move on? Like, I've, I've complained about this in almost every film to date. <sighs> Moving on. Disney standard romance. Then there's this wonderful bit where Frollo yells at Quasimodo, and he says, and I quote, All of Paris is burning because of you. <laughs> Funnily enough, given the earlier thing, I'm thinking he actually believes that, that he actually puts no blame for this on himself, that this is all Quasimodo's fault for letting her out. If he had just kept her locked up so she could be his sex slave, then everything would be fine. God! I, I, if it wasn't Tony J, I'd just... Ugh. Thankfully, he is an excellent voice. It's the Tim Curry effect. You can take a really despicable character and give them an amazing voice actor, and it kind of helps them to be more palatable. The next thing he says, this is funny, is he's like, no, she was kind to me. That wasn't kindness, that was cunning. Well, that's funny, since uh, you are incapable of kindness, Frollo. But you are capable of cunning. So naturally, they tricked him into the court. You notice the gypsies are just as eager to murder people, just like that, by the way. That always struck me as weird. They don't even do anything like with that at all. The, the most that that does is shows that the other side is not as innocent as they otherwise could be perceived, uh, that everyone is to blame, which actually, if you're paying attention, is thematically significant. Remember, these same gypsies and normal people were also willing to, you know, torture and be cruel to Quasimodo just because other people started doing it. Mob mentality. Fun, isn't it? So, <clears throat> this then leads to Frollo putting her, being willing to burn her at the stake, which is a pretty horrible death as far as deaths go. Oh, oh, oh wait, but wait. Right at the last minute, he publicly, in full view of everyone, says, If you choose me, <laughs> lots and lots of sex will happen. Or you could burn to death. Yeah, her spitting on him made me just go a little... Just because, God, it's okay. He really gets what's coming to him. So this then leads to the big final battle. We see the strength in Dex... I literally have it written down, S-T-R and D-E-X. The strength and dexterity of Quasimodo comes into play as he really helps in the final battle. Uh, the CGI, really good stuff. I already kind of referenced that. The mob, well, now this is a funny one, because as I mentioned, mob mentality has kind of been a thing this whole film. So now the mob 
goes on our side because they are prompted, just like they did last time. Remember, mob mentality isn't evil, it's actually neutral. Mob mentality is going with the mob. So Phoebus is like, ah, and riles the mob up. And so now we have an army on our side. That's cute. Then, then there's the gargoyles. Now this is the first and last time I'll talk about the gargoyles. They actually assist in the defense of Notre Dame. If it wasn't for this, I would say without, with, with total certainty that the gargoyles are just a figment of Quasimodo's imagination. That they are a, 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 a f invisible friend or an imaginary friend kind of a situation that he has constructed over years and years of solitude and loneliness because that makes perfect sense. If you, seriously, if you watch the film and listen to what they're saying in every scene, Big, a uh, big example of this is the she totally should love you because you're awesome scene. You know, the, the you should fall in love with her scene that happened just a few scenes ago. Um, that musical number, along with many other scenes, shows that they are basically just different aspects of his own personality. His own mind talking to itself. And all of that makes perfect sense and was confirmed by the directors, actually. That that was their original intent for the gargoyles, was for them to just be aspects of him. Except for the fact that they're actually running around helping in the defense of Notre Dame. As we've been going through these films, I've been quietly cataloging and paying attention to the instances of magic throughout each of these films. And this one is, like Lion King, very, very low-tier magic. In fact, arguably, if the gargoyles are just an aspect of his mind, then there is no magic uh, at all in this film, which is actually kind of awesome, because it would be the first one. Unfortunately, thanks to the defense scene, we kind of have to acknowledge that they are, in fact, magic. So, yay. Now, I know I'm going to say something in a minute that's going to make you think, well, hang on, that's magic, but that's a different category. It doesn't count. So, Frollo... Frollo breaks sanctuary and assaults a church in the middle of downtown Paris. I guess I shouldn't call this downtown, but you know what I mean. If you don't understand why I'm saying that, he has just destroyed his career. It is over for him. You do not break the, break the sanctity of the Catholic Church. They have plenty of power, even at this point in history. And this is something that will absolutely destroy him, because all of his opponents are going to be able to use this against him politically, and nobody's going to be willing to back him because of how far he was willing to go. This is a huge no-no. But it, it's, it's good. It's good writing because it shows how far he's gone, how far he's descended. He's basically at what I usually like to call the one-winged angel point. And for those of you who are not familiar with my usage of that terminology, the one-winged angel isn't, you know, I'm going to become super monstrously powerful. The one-winged angel is when you've already lost, basically, and you don't care anymore. All you care about is getting your revenge, or destroying the world, or destroying the heroes, or whatever. And that's the one-winged angel moment. When you basically are ruining or destroying yourself and or your plans just because screw you. And this is why this is Frollo's one-winged angel moment. So he, he's just, ah, fine, I don't care, I don't care, I'm going to get up there, and I'm going to kill them, and they're going to be gone. And he gets up there, and there's this big battle, and Frollo's, you know, using his mutant abilities. And there is this wonderful scene where Frollo gets up on one of the gargoyle things and says, And, the, uh, and he shall smite the wicked and plunge them into the fiery pit. And the moment he finishes saying that, it cracks, and he falls into the fiery pit. That makes me smile every time I see that. <laughs> 
As a quick aside, you could take a lot of different implications from this. You notice the, gar the gargoyle statue comes alive for just a second right at the end there. You could assume that this is the magic that, that keeps the gargoyles alive doing this. You could assume that it's his own hallucinations. I'm going to say something weird. I like to think that it's God. I like to think that God's like, all right, dude, enough. Poke. Ah! And that's the end of that. I know that doesn't fit. And I know that doesn't really go, go in line with the rest of the film or, or the presentation of God in general within the Catholic religion. But it's just something about that amuses me. Of course, the final interpretation is the most obvious one, that Frollo does it to himself. That Frollo effectively kills himself. And the fact that he's the one who says, and he shall smite the wicked and plunge them into the fiery pit, kind of helps to lend credence to that. So he falls and dies. Frollo, excuse me, Frollo, Quasimodo, who has, of course, gotten over his crush, helps Phoebus and, and Esmeralda. I mean, it's so obvious they should be together. They've known each other for so long and had such a long and developed, long and developed Disney relationship. But what I like is right at the end, that she goes ahead and is like, okay, no, you need to come out too. You need to come out too. And offers for him to leave to have all of the good and the bad that freedom brings. I will admit I don't have many strong memories of this film prior to this rewatching, mostly because I didn't actually see it in the theaters um, by basically total coincidence. I didn't see Pocahontas or Hunchback of Notre Dame in theaters. It wasn't deliberate. It was, it was just a coincidence. But, um, so I didn't, I didn't see it until it came out on VHS, and then after that, the next time I saw it was in Kingdom Hearts Dream Drop Distance. It's really hard to avoid Kingdom Hearts thoughts as I'm going through this franchise, by the way. Anyways, so I didn't have much going, but I was actually impressed and surprised by how good this was. And I have to admit, Frollo might actually be the most evil villain I've seen in the Disney Renaissance so far. Like, holy hell! I mean, we've seen some messed up stuff, but I think the only other villain who has come to as bad as Frollo in terms of just sheer wicked evilness is Ursula. And that's only because of the whole predatory using living beings as components thing. And that's an understated thing. Here, Frollo is being nice and overt about what he is. Either way, enjoyable movie. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time.